Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm speaking with Eric Klug, the Magic community's foremost altar artist. Eric paints amazing altars in the style of classical art such as Aronimus Bosch and Alphonse Mucha. Eric has also reproduced art in the style of Therese Nielsen's Guru Lands and has a wide range including popular motifs from Miyazaki to Marvel Comics. Eric also tells us how he got started painting altars and what his art means to him. Eric also has a great love of cubes and we talk a bit about it as well. I hope you enjoy my interview with the multi-talented Eric Klug. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and today I am here with Eric Klug. Eric, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And Eric, you are regarded as the Magic community's most talented altar artist. Wow. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I would give myself that title, but uh, coming from someone else, so it's much appreciated. And you are very, very talented, Eric. Um, I don't know if my listeners have checked out your artwork, but you have done a tremendous plethora of work ranging from classical art to anime to fan fiction, comics, everything. I mean, you've done so much. You've even gone so far to mimic the Guru Lands by Therese Nielsen in a Path to Exile style altar. The styles that I have approached uh, really just kind of reflect my artistic sensibilities, you know, that's like the artworks that I like. That has a huge range. So naturally, that's going to translate to altering too. I'm very excited to talk to you today. And just like with all of my guests, I wanted to start at the beginning. Where are you from? And when did you first find magic? We're going to have to go back to 1998. I am originally from Ohio, around the Cincinnati area, and my first introduction to magic was when I switched schools in middle school, seventh grade, and I didn't really know anyone. I was just kind of trying to find my niche as a 12, 13-year-old kid in a new school, and uh, over a sleepover, immediately everyone pulled out their elf decks and their goblin decks, and it seemed like everything had a tribal theme looking back on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was really intrigued. They taught me how to play as best they could. I'm sure uh, some of the rules were a little bit sketchy back then. Mm -hmm, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was instantly hooked, like, you know, everybody else's origin story, just instantly hooked. I remember just telling my parents when they picked me up the next day that, like, I needed to go out and just get some magic cards. I didn't know what I needed. I knew that I had to have my own cards. <laughs> you know, luckily, my, my parents understood that I was trying to fit in in this new environment. So uh, we went to the store, you know, maybe the next day and uh, got my first tournament pack of Urza's Saga. That is really sweet. So you started back in Urza Saga. Yeah. Yeah, I started in Urza Saga as well. Oh, so we're like kindred spirits. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, do you remember what the first rare you had out of a booster was? Um, first rare. Actually, thinking back on it, Urza Saga was definitely the current set. And I definitely bought a lot of that. But I think I may have picked up a fifth edition tournament pack. Mm -hmm. One of my first rares was... There was like a um, like a pentagram card. Oh, man, it's been so long. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. And, you know, this is not widely known, Eric, but you are quite an accomplished magic player. I'd like to think that as someone who's played for 17, 18 years, I have a small list of accomplishments. I've seen all levels of play. I've played on the Pro Tour. 
I've played uh, at a Worlds tournament. I definitely always want to play on the highest level. I'm a very competitive person by nature. But at the same time, it's never been quite a grind for me. And so a lot of my magic accomplishments have been more of like a checklist. Like I wanted to play on the Pro Tour at least once. I wanted to play at a Worlds tournament at least once. And now that I have, I've kind of stepped back from that. That is really cool, Eric. So you played on the Pro Tour. You also played at a Worlds tournament. Eric, can you share with us which Worlds team you were on? So I was alternate for the Korean national team in uh, the last Worlds tournament, which was 2010. That was in Chiba, Japan. And so while I wasn't directly contributing to the team because I was alternate and the other three players were there, I was allowed to compete individually in the tournament. How did you get on the Korean team? I was teaching English in Korea for a year from 2009 to 2010. And naturally, I was not going to set down my cards while I was there for the year. I found out that as a resident of Korea, the year before the national started, I was allowed to compete. I ended up coming in fourth place and that gave me a qualification for Worlds. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. So coming in fourth <laughs> in a country that like wasn't even your country to begin with. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Eric, when did you start doing altars? I can remember looking at some of my first altars in 2008. I was looking on the MTG Salvation Forums. Their art form had these people painting on cards. It was like what you see around a lot. A lot of the amateur altarists doing is the uh, like border extensions, mm -hmm. where you take the original art and you expand it out over the borders of the card in the card frame. It was different than the Magic Artist Altars, you know, the official artists for the games, mm -hmm. those altars that they were doing. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to try my hand at it. Um, and I ended up picking up some materials the exact same day and just going home and doing my first altar on a Wall of Blossoms. And that was your first altar back in the day? Right, that was my first. And since then, Eric, you've done a lot of uh, altars, especially in the style of like some classical art and some like modern art as well. And so you've done a lot by Hieronymus Bosch, as well as Alfonso Mucha. Mm -hmm. And they've been really beautiful. Yeah, thank you. It's definitely my clients who dictate a lot of the projects I work on. Um, basically, all the work that I'm posting online these days is commission-based. Um, so if I post one altar that's inspired by Alphonse Mucha, naturally, that leads to a lot more uh, Mucha commissions. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm fine with that because the origin of those altars was me introducing a client to that artist. Muka, I've known his work since I was back in high school when I was doing some summer art projects. And that was my first introduction to uh, Muka. Bosch, very similar. Uh, I learned about him in high school, uh, like art history sort of context. Basically, that's what I'm doing is I'm just looking for inspirations in my own artistic knowledge and uh, applying those, seeing, finding, you know, places where those styles fit well. And then naturally, that leads people to kind of do their own investigations into art history, which I think is pretty cool. And then they'll come to me and maybe propose an idea. So for the listening audience, the nouveau moxes that Eric has done in the style of Mooka, they're kind of like those retro French posters of like the absinthe green fairy. Uh, you have a female figure and, you know, she's in a robe and there's this really ornate background in this really beautiful scene. And you've done a lot of moxes, a lot of power in that style. Right. You, you hit the nail on the head. The art movement that Muka was a part of was, is called Art Nouveau. Definitely a lot of his illustrations and paintings uh, were 
for like commercial purposes, like, you know, little like champagne French posters, like you said. And for Bosch, it was really classical art history that you were talking about. I think he did a bunch of paintings, the Garden of Earthly Delights or something like that. Right. It's these really beautiful and scenic works of depicting biblical scripture. And it's, uh, there's these many scenes of all of these like people that are kind of naked, but you know, like biblically <laughs> naked. And they're just like in this ridiculous and whimsical garden. And Bosch also does, um, the scene of like hell, right? Of like, mm-hmm. it's more mm-hmm. demonic. It's much more dark. It's just kind of like the antithesis of the Garden of Earthly Delights. Yeah. So he, his, Paintings definitely had a religious context. Um, his most famous work is this triptych, which um, to the uninitiated, that's like a painting, but divided into like three parts. And so on the left side, you have like the Garden of Eden, that's called the Garden of Earthly Delights. And then in the center, you have this depiction of like modern day or his modern day. And then on the right, you have a depiction of hell. And Bosch actually did a lot of different depictions of hell in there. They're really kind of crazy and trippy. There's like so many things going on and there's lots of symbolism. There's like animals personified and they're really crazy, but at the same time, just incredibly meticulous paintings. And Bosch specifically, now that I'm thinking about it, is not only did I really like his paintings before I did any alterations with him, but he was also just a challenge for me because his paintings are so incredibly detailed. When someone approached me and asked me if I wanted to do a Bosch on a card, I was like, let's try it out. Because to be honest, I wasn't sure if I could pull it off, you know, in a way that I liked. And you know, Eric, I've seen a lot of your work and your Bosch altars are spot on. I mean, you can't even tell. The the level of craft that you have is, you know, it would be ridiculous to say that it was on the level of the master himself, but like really, it's very close. It's very good. It's a very faithful representation. And this goes so much into your art with Muka, as well as um, your comic book art, your Miyazaki altars. I mean, your characters for video games and things like that. I mean, really, you're you're very highly skilled. Thank you. It's been uh, something that I've been interested in a long time is producing very accurate uh, reproductions of another artist's work. And what goes into that is not only getting the, the composition right, you know, getting everything in the right place and all of the figures having the right proportions, but also kind of mimicking the texture of the work, the, you know, the brush strokes. And that can be even more difficult when you're trying to translate an artist who did not work in acrylic, which is what I work in. Um, so you need to need to make the acrylic come across as like an oil painting or a pastel or, you know, a line drawing. So that's another daily challenge for me. And that's what keeps the work interesting. Yeah, I'm always looking for new ways to challenge me every day. Eric, you're not necessarily able to do a study right on the medium because it is a magic card. You don't get a second one to mess up on. Um, How do you do your artistic studies? Do you just do them on a canvas or you do them on other cardboard? Um, So technology has really aided me quite a bit in the fact that I can take the images of the card and the artwork into Photoshop and uh, resize everything together so I can do kind of like a little digital mock-up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps in just kind of figuring out composition and how the artwork will fit onto the card in relation to any of the places that I want to keep, like the text box or the uh, the title, the casting cost, things like that. 
I would say that uh, when I'm working, paint is really forgiving um, as long as you kind of know how to work with it and that you can you can wipe away wet paint. You can paint over dry paint. Um, I work very, very thin, um, so it doesn't really add significant thickness to the card to, you know, go over an area. Um, so I think, you know, eight or nine years into altering now, I think I have uh, a good system down for you know, working while I'm working, you know, figuring things out while I'm working and, you know, finding solutions to problems. Now, Eric, one of my favorite pieces that you've done recently was a guru version of Therese Nielsen's Path to Exile. And it was this gorgeous, it was the original conflux art of, I think, the Leonin getting blown away and turned into flower petals or something like that. But the background that you've done was in the style of a guru planes. Yeah. Um, yeah, all the credit ha- goes to Therese Nielsen. Like 90% of that altar is just all her. Mm-hmm. Um, her artwork's incredible. Of course, her guru lands are world renowned at this point. And kind of going back to what I'm saying is mimicking a artist medium. Um, Therese kind of, you know, she's the full gamut. She's a, a mixed media artist, in my opinion. She, you know, has used oils, gouache, colored pencil, ink, gold leaf, you know, you name it in her artwork. So uh, trying to mimic her artwork and reproduce it faithfully in just acrylic is a real challenge, especially at, you know, 66 millimeters or, you know, whatever the size of a magic card is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, that definitely, that path to exile was definitely some of my favorite. Um, Eric, what are some of your pieces most memorable to you? Um, so... Really? So, like, when I go back and I have scans of pretty much all of the works that I've ever done, um, it's just, I can, I can remember things about all of them. Uh, the memorable pieces, the ones that stick out to me are the ones that were, like, first times. Um, the first time I did Mooka on a card was on the Black Lotus, which was coincidentally also my first Lotus that I worked on. Wow. So, that one's memorable. Right now, my banner on my Facebook page is this Time Vault. Um, that uses a Dutch still life painting of like a skull and a, you know, decaying flower. And there's some symbolism there, but it's like a photorealistic representation. So that one was particularly difficult and I was pretty happy with how it came out. Um, so I don't think any one is more special than any other one. If that's just a bit of a cop out answer, but, uh, yeah, they're all kind of special to me in a different way. But the, the times when I did something for the first time, those are the ones that, um, stick out of my mind the most. Eric, how much power would you say that you've altered? So I actually, I went back and checked. It's kind of mind blowing to me that, uh, that I've done so much power at this point that I can't remember off the top of my head how much I've done. But I think. With maybe a few exceptions, I've done 12 Mox Pearl, 11 Mox Sapphire, 10 Mox Jet, 9 Ruby, 10 Emerald, 11 Lotus, 5 Recall, 5 Walk, and I didn't go back and check Time Twister because I, I don't count Time Twister. <laughs> 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 that's, that's 73 pieces of power, uh, excluding all the Time Twisters I've done, um, which, wow, it's uh, kind of crazy to remember a time when I hadn't altered a single piece of power. That is insane. That's <laughs> that's a lot of value. Um, <laughs> that's a lot of value. Let me say this real quick, though. I know that people get touchy um, sometimes about you know people who love my alters, and then they st- they're still like, oh, I kind of cringe when I see altered power, um, which I can kind of understand. They're they're pieces of magic history. There is a lot of value inherent in them. 
Um, but just remember that most of these pieces of power were beat up, long forgotten, dirty, and dungy. And I like to think that I've breathed uh, some life back into them. And also that they're still, even doing 73 pieces of power is just a, actually a minute, minute percentage of the power that's still out there. I really liken them to more of restorations because you show the process. You show what the card looks like when you received it. And they mm -hmm. are beyond heavily played. <laughs> they are Great. straight damaged. And mm -hmm. the front looks like it's been sitting on a sidewalk for the last 10 years and people have been walking on top of it. A lot of it is just worn down to the, to the cardboard. It's gray. Um, and the way that you're able to bring it back to life, you give it just a second chance. You give it a second lease on life, I almost feel. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I'm pretty sure that just all of the owners who have those cards right now, either in their cubes or in their EDH decks or just, you know, in their binders as preserved carefully, you know, really appreciate the work that you've done because I do understand where some people would be like, I don't know about this guy. He's going out there painting on these pieces of magic history, but uh, really, they're, they're really, really damaged, you know, cards and you've really, you know, stepped up and elevated and put so much creativity and something, not, not just anything. It's not like you painted like Deadpool onto the front of a Mox Ruby. You brought together a piece of art history and you've really tastefully applied your craft to that art. Yeah, and it's not as if I haven't been asked to paint Deadpool on the front. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and that's why I There's joke. There's definitely been a couple of those uh, those requests, uh, and you know, I I have to kind of calmly, you know, uh, well, let's, let's maybe try something a little bit more classic that you know that has kind of that timeless quality to it. That uh, you know, even if you end up getting rid of this this power down the line, you know, someone else will really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've looked through your entire catalog and uh, listeners, uh, there's going to be links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. But I really do encourage everyone to look through the Clug Alters blog spot and also the Clug Alters Facebook page because there's just so many interesting things. I mean, there's like hundreds of images and I just get lost going through them. And, and every single one that I look at is just a delight. I think that your level of detail and then also the way that you You've applied your art to matching with what a client has asked you to commission, as well as the meaningfulness of what that specific magic card is, it always matches very well. And I'm always very delighted when I see that art. Well, thanks so much. Um, yeah, quality has really been my mantra, um, especially when I first started doing this as like a living instead of a hobby. I've always wanted to put the maximum amount, amount of effort into each piece and even if it went beyond what i felt i was being compensated to do um because ultimately each of these cards represent me as an artist and e I, I want these cards to 10 years later for me to be able to look back on them and still be proud of what i did um so i definitely appreciate you know you seeing the work that i put into each piece yeah, and you know, uh, speaking about cubes and things, Eric, recently, Wizards of the Coast had a Make Your Own Cube contest, and you were one of the finalists. Um, oh, finalists, not winner. <laughs> <laughs> it was close. It was close. Um, you created a cube called the Pro Tour History Cube. 
So to talk about a little bit about that, I, again, something I can't take full credit for because the idea for this actually started on Twitter. And if I'm remembering correctly, it was Sam Black, Patrick Chapin, and maybe a few other people uh, musing about what a cube would look like if it was all of the Pro Tour decks that ever won a Pro Tour. And uh, we kind of modified it to one of each card that has ever won a Pro Tour. There's still no multiples. It still kind of holds to the cube singleton nature. And uh, so that's what it is now. It's about 800 cards, and it's only constructed Pro Tours. And it includes worlds as well where the top eight was a constructed one. Yeah, I saw that contest being announced and I also was like very eager to construct and submit my own cube. And then I looked at how much work it was. I was like, oh my God, this is actually a ton of work um, thinking about it. Um, you know, I just barely scratched the surface of my like crummy little cube, but I was really excited to see kind of who the finalists were because I almost kind of forgot about that. And uh, when I saw your name, I was like, oh my gosh, like you are so multi-talented. You play magic pretty competitively you uh, are like the magic community's foremost altar artist and then now you're a, a cube specialist so i was really impressed <laughs> yeah i mean when you've played a game for 18 years uh it's i hesitate to say easy but uh it is kind of natural to kind of fall into a lot of different areas of the game and cube for me uh i love building cubes I played with a ton of Legos back in the day, and that's what cube building is for me, is, you know, I can sit down and there are 10,000 plus unique pieces that I can put together to create a game experience. And so I've, I've built like four or five cubes over, you know, the past 10 years. Pro Tour Cube really was just about assembling the list, you know, um, because it, it's about history more than anything. And it really started off as an experiment as to whether or not it was playable or, or not, you know, because we weren't really sure. And uh, once we got all the cards together and we did a couple of drafts, uh, it ended up being like just great, kind of mind-blowingly great, right? Because we didn't do a lot of curation uh, like most cubes get. And yeah, it's just kind of grown from there. And it's added a lot of interest in watching the Pro Tour. I've always been interested in watching the Pro Tour, and now I have this like little extra, you know, little side game to the Pro Tour in, in terms of who I'm rooting for, um, because I want their cards to get entered into the cube. You know, I really love this concept of a cube. I've been playing Magic for about 15 years, and I've dirtled a lot, and I've been a very casual Magic player for many of those 15 years. And so, um, you know, I've never played on the Pro Tour or anything like that. But uh, I have also not even really built a cube, and I don't even get an opportunity to draft very often. Very recently, because of the cube contest and also the make-your-own format um, that Wizards was talking about, it really got me thinking about Magic from a different perspective. Um you know, and I've spoken to many other guests on this podcast, and we've been throwing around this idea of what would be great to make the game more accessible to players because, you know, it's tough to buy more cards. And it's, you know, I, I have an okay collection, and I know some other players have a huge collection. And also, there are some players who don't have very much of a collection at all. What would it look like to be able to play the game? 
uh, repeatedly get better at the game and not have to spend a ton of money. And so I was really thinking about this idea that, you know, there are card shops all over the world who have just bins of old commons and uncommons that, you know, were relevant at one point, but after being cracked from the first booster, just never saw the light of day ever again. And so I was wondering about making interesting but throwback, you know, popper cubes, like bulk rare cubes, right? Um, and then just uh, allowing them to be sleeved up and, you know, self-encompassed with basic lands into like one of those little tray deck boxes and just mm -hmm. passed around from person to person. It would be kind of like everyone bringing their own version of settlers. I mean, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's re replayable and you can bust it out at any time and everyone kind of knows that the power levels of the cube will be about the same. And that's kind of was like a, a thought that I've had for quite a while and revitalizing all this cardboard that are just sitting around not doing anything. I, yeah, I completely agree with you. And if you don't know this about me, I actually, my first cube that I ever built was a peasant one. Oh. Um, so that's commons and uncommons. And the reason was because I just didn't, you know, it was back in high school or maybe early college where I didn't have a huge budget. Um, so I couldn't buy all the most expensive, most powerful cards to put into a cube. And so I just wanted to start with the cards that I had on hand, which a lot were like commons and uncommons. And, uh, but then I, you know, I still wanted that you know, ultra powerful cube mentality. And so I picked out the most powerful uncommons, the most powerful, sorry, the most powerful commons and uncommons. Yeah, I think, you know, your idea just takes that, you know, a step further. Uh, you've got me talking about cube and it's just such a loaded topic. So I can talk <laughs> endlessly about it. It's a way to kind of uh, restrict yourself in a way that gets back to my origins in magic. Uh, one of the issues that I encountered early on is that when I was learning how to play better and identify good cards, it became harder and harder to build those decks from the early days, you know, the, the fun decks that had weird numbers, you know, you had one ofs and two ofs and three ofs in a deck, you know, the deck wasn't hyper efficient or hyper consistent. And cube is a way to get back to that without, you know, pulling your hair out, you know, because you, you do have a, some limitations. You know, I've always been dreaming about one day getting to commission you to do an entire Clug Altered Cube. Like, <laughs> with power and, like, everything. Like, every single card has been altered by you. Well, it... I've had a dream, a, kind of a similar dream, uh, would be to get a lot of my altars back together in one place and do like some sort of, I don't know what the format w for it would be, but like kind of like an artist exhibition. I don't know, someday. <laughs> <laughs> because one, it would be a really, it would be a huge undertaking to try to do like an entire cube just because I don't do that many altars. Um, you know, I do maybe two or three pieces a week. And so to do a whole cube, like, it would take ages. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that would take years of your nonstop painting <laughs> cube altars. Right. But then if I look back into the past, um, I've done, you know, maybe a thousand plus cards at this point. I haven't kept an exact number. Wow. It's around a thousand. And so it would be just cool to get like, you know, a small percentage of those together and just kind of, you know, look back on everything I've done and what seems like a short time, but it has been, you know, years. Yeah, that's amazing.
And Eric, your art really has evolved tremendously since you first started, and you have shared about that you are a student of art. I read an AMA uh, not too long ago on Reddit, and a lot of your fans were asking you, why don't you become an artist for Magic the Gathering? And you kind of responded that, uh, you know, some of the artists that go into making the official art that goes on to the cards that we see today are some of the best production and best creative artists that we have in the world. Right. Yeah. Magic is kind of rightly so lucky to have access to the best illustrators in the world. That makes sense because I'm sure a lot of those artists grew up around Magic, especially now when some of those generations are becoming working professionals. And then the other side of that is that... I, you know, as a, as a just normal artist, non-alteration, I'm not 100% sure that my style would mesh well with magic. I can create the illusion that it would when I'm working on a magic card size level, you know? When you see my artwork that I've painted on, you know, an altar, it seems, you know, people jump to, oh, it fits, right? But, you know, an alteration is different than like a full-size illustration. Uh, obviously, I would, you know, love to one day have my personal artwork on a magic card. I've done some illustrations for uh, Ascension recently. So I've done work for other games. So who knows? And Eric, what is coming up for you either personally or professionally? Like what's on the horizon for you? Um, well, I just recently moved to San Francisco, uh, all the way across the country from Maryland, where I'd been for the past 10 years or so. And the motivation for that was just I, I wanted to get out on the West Coast. My wife and I have, you know, dreamt about living on the West Coast for quite some time. And uh, we just, you know, eventually found the right time to do it. And so now that I'm here, I'm not really sure where that will lead. Uh, I'm certainly doing more altars here, um, but I'm also going out into the, the beautiful landscape that is California and doing some personal painting. And I'm not sure if that will lead me to doing some more like gallery style work or if I want to pursue some more commercial projects, which there's plenty of those out here too. Um, lots of game companies in San Francisco and, you know, along the, the Western coast. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. I've never been a huge planner in terms of, you know, like planning out my life more than six months at a time. So well, we'll just really have to see. That's really cool. Um, you know, the professor is out there in San Francisco. Maybe you can paint something for his new campus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love the professor. Um, I love the West Coast. Plenty of great people out here. I hope to, you know, make it up to Seattle and see a lot of the, the big magic names just because I'm so much closer now. Mm -hmm, yeah. And I have a lot of friends that, you know, work on magic or work in proximity to magic. So, yeah, it, I think the, the next year or two is going to be really interesting. That's really awesome. Well, you'll for sure have to keep us posted. Eric, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, which is your favorite color and why? Because I've been playing the game for 17 or 18 years, I feel like each there's been like durations of my life where I have identified with any one of the five colors. So when I first started playing, um, I really identified with black um, just because I thought the artwork was, you know, really cool and dark. And as a 12, 13 year old, it seemed really kind of like hardcore. And <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, so, but then as I uh, matured, I started playing more of like the 
the known constructed decks of the time, which uh, when I first started playing constructed magic, it was like Fires of Yavamaya, if you remember that card. Yeah. So I, I, I was more a fan of red and green. And uh, then I moved on, you know, I, I've matured even more and I started playing the blue decks, you know, as we, f- we find that, you know, the blue is like a very intellectual color and, uh, you know, for a thinking man and I left white out there, but I definitely had a life gain deck when I first started playing Magic also. So I don't identify with any one of the colors, but I definitely see like time periods in my life where I was attracted to one more than anything else. Uh, if I had to not give you a cop-out answer and settle for one, I'd say red just because you know, I like to be down. Ah, sweet. Okay, okay. Sounds good. And uh, if you could pair another color with red, what would you pick? Uh, probably white, right? White. Uh, goes with red in terms of beating down better than any of the other colors. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Eric, question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Uh, if I had to change something about Magic, I think I would uh, make it more digitally accessible. I think that's probably the hot topic right now um, with Magic Digital Next uh, on the horizon somewhere. Um, Hearthstone obviously is like a huge entity in the gaming market. And I really feel like magic rightfully deserves a very good digital platform. So I would love to, you know, it's, it's fun to hate on Moto. I still play Moto pretty regularly and I would love for it to just be, you know, a force that competes with all of the other digital games out there. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Eric, question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? A huge thing for me when I first started playing Magic was parents that supported my hobby. I I told that story about, you know, my parents picking me up, telling them I needed to get some Magic cards, and them acquiescing to that request. And to go take that even further, my stepdad specifically took me to pre-releases, drove two hours back when they were not held by LGSs, but were like kind of big weekend long conventions. Mm-hmm. Mine specifically was in Columbus and I lived in Cincinnati. That was about a two hour drive. Yeah. Every three months, whenever a set came out, he would take me to these pre-releases and, you know, park a chair in a corner and read a book uh, <laughs> for the day. And uh, I am eternally grateful for that. And if I could give that to every single Magic player, especially, you know, ones that are under 18 and just coming into the game, that would be amazing just because it really contributed greatly to Magic being like a lasting force in my life. That's very cool. Eric, question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? I think Magic is going to just keep rolling. I I think it has a, a really great group of people behind it, both in the community and the people who produce it. I think that Magic is a little slow to adapt to the time. So, you know, we mentioned uh, MTGO, but I think we're going to get there. I think that the fans of Magic have been lifelong fans for a reason. It's the best game ever made, you know, still after 25 years or so. And uh, yeah, I think it's just going to, it'll change. Uh, Magic is definitely a different game than, you know, when it first came out, Alpha Beta. Uh, But it's not a worse game, you know, it's not, it's not, it still has that core entity to it. You know, that, that thing that where you learn it for the first time and you, you know, instantly I gotta, I gotta go out and get my own cards. (laughs) (laughs) And last, Eric, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience, like where they can find you on social? Uh, As a bit of a crotchety old man, I would say, please, Please, if you want to get in contact with me, email me. 
My email is E-A-K-L-U-G at Gmail. I know that in this day and age, it's it's really easy to kind of pop a message on social media. And I'm, I am on Twitter and Facebook. But uh, those things get lost in the shuffle way easier than emails. I guarantee if you email me, you will get a response. I do my best to email everybody back within a timely fashion. Um, and that just keeps things organized for me. So definitely email me if you're interested in commissions. If you just want to casually get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter, K-L-U-G underscore alters. And Facebook is facebook.com slash Klug alters. Yes. And I will have all of the links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Eric, I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge you and also thank you for everything that you've done for the community. You've uh, really applied yourself into bringing beautiful art to us and you've uh, done a great job restoring and saving some of these pieces of magic history that have, uh, you know, sadly fallen by the wayside due to time or wear and tear or just kind of circumstance. And uh, I know that for myself, at least, that whenever I look at one of your altars, I'm just absolutely inspired. I'm absolutely blown away. And listeners, if you can, please go check out the gallery that Eric has because the stuff that Eric has done is just so gorgeous. And it's even more breathtaking when you realize that it's painted on some decrepit old piece of power. So, it's just really inspiring and amazing. So, Eric, I just wanted to thank you and I'm very happy that you're here in the community. Thanks so much, Sam. And thanks for having me on. I I always love talking about magic. It's hard for me to believe sometimes that I am like holding a magic card every single day of my life. You know, that's that's what I'm working on. But yeah, I do. I think about magic every day. I work on, you know, magic cards every day. And, you know, I will talk about magic endlessly until you pay me to stop. (laughs) Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eric Klug. Go say hi to Eric on Twitter at Klug underscore alters. That's at K-L-U-G underscore A-L-T-E-R-S. And be sure to check out Eric's art on Facebook.com slash Klug alters. And if you want to have Eric alter a card for you, be sure to email him eaklug at gmail.com. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. The Kitchen Table Magic podcast has been all about the origins of the game and members of the community. And as a community, we've come a long way since the game first started. Apart from the Kitchen Table, the only other places in your local community to play Magic are at local game stores. And that's why places like Paragon City Games is so important for our community. At Paragon City Games, you'll find a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for magic events. You'll find thoughtful accessories like die-hard metal dice and handcrafted wooden boxes. You'll find a huge supply of legacy, modern, and standard staples, sealed product, and tabletop games. It's places like Paragon City Games that allow local communities to gather in. And if you can't make it there in person, please be sure to watch their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash ParagonCityGames. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They also have great online reviews and that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. Thanks everybody for listening to this week's show. I want to take a moment to thank all of my newest Patreon supporters, Neil, James G, and Aaron C. James and Aaron both shared with me that they started listening to Kitchen Table Magic in the middle of Season 2 and that now they are listening to Season 1. If you're new to the show, please listen to Season 1. There are lots of interesting stories told by your favorite people. 
Christine Sprankle, Wedge from the Manasaurus, Brian Brown Doon, Chris Pakula, Mark Rosewater, and Jerry Thompson, who, if you don't know, just won Pro Tour Amonkit last week. Congratulations again, Jerry. Kitchen Table Magic is all about the behind-the-scenes stories of our favorite people in the Magic the Gathering community. So if you enjoy a rare glimpse into these people's lives, please consider supporting Kitchen Table Magic on Patreon. I'm so moved by the generous support of Neil, James, and Aaron this past week. Thank you all so much. I'll be sending out some cool stuff for you in the mail in the coming weeks. And remember, my Patreon supporters at the $6 level get special gifts from my interviews. If you would like to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic and become a supporter. For just a few bucks a month, you'll get access to extra audio content, behind the scenes show notes, and special gifts from my interviews. The season two finale is coming up and I have a very special Patreon supporter gift that I'm planning. It was funny because I had to buy out a somewhat hard to find card in my local area because you know me, good old skeezy Sam buying out all those old cards for my Patreon supporters. Anywho's, I just want to thank all of my Patreon supporters, Brian, James L, Marcus, Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Mark, Aaron M, Neil, James G, and Aaron C for your generous support. Wow, my Patreon supporters have grown to become a pack of wolves, a gaggle of geese, a herd of elephants, a murder of crows, a gathering of mages, a baker's dozen, whatever you want to call it. Again, thank you all so much. Your support of Kitchen Table Magic allows me to share stories about the amazing people in the Magic the Gathering community with the world. Thank you. Be sure to follow Kitchen Table Magic on Twitter at KTM Podcast. Like the show on Facebook.com slash Kitchen Table Magic Podcast. All the show notes are at kitchentablemagic.org. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and mtgcast.com. Remember, if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to share a KTM with a friend. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic... Magic has a really long game history and there have been so many like strange and like one-off card like exceptions created like we're able to do like 90% of cards no problem but it's like that last 10% like kind of esoteric cards that will kill you like for example we try to display every all the mana symbols for cards like did you know there is one card that has a Phyrexian mana symbol with no color you know we have to provide a symbol for that the uncards like unglued and unhinged those are well beloved by the community but those have added a lot of extra search work because they have like they have mana symbols that don't exist anywhere else they have things like half mana where like their converted mana cost is a fraction um, and you can actually look that up you can search for things that have um, a half converted mana cost in scryfall and you'll find the uncards you can search for half manas we wanted to archive those and not just put like kind of the text in the, the dumb box and not let find it so we had to do a lot of work to get the unsets in there i'm talking to Corey schuster co-creator of scryfall the magic community's fastest and sleekest card lookup website scryfall is created by a talented group of people Corey schuster chris davis chuck harmston greg mcwilliam and joseph price they're all heavy hitting web developers and that's why scryfall has provided the magic community with such an exceptional experience Join me and Corey Schuster as we talk about how Scryfall got started and its many features, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.